The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I'm your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Associate Professor Xiaoqian Hu, Professor of Law at University of Arizona. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Mangala. In about 30 seconds, how would you describe vulnerability theory? Just your elevator speech. 30 seconds describing vulnerability theory. It's an alternative theory to classical liberal theory about how we view the human individual or the human being. Um, it seeks commonality um, and it transcends group division. It does not pathologize. It does not classify people. And in that regard, it has huge universal potential and it invokes uh, human compassion, solidarity, uh, support, understanding, empathy. All of these, I think, are currently uh, in great need in the current legal and political world. So I think it has huge potential for social justice, both in terms of class, race, gender, and and other uh, dimensions. Tell us a little about how your interest in social justice first began and how that then segued into your interest in vulnerability theory. That has a lot to do with my background because I grew up in a village in the mountains in rural China, in a village where there was no electricity, no running water until the 1990s. Um, so I was in elementary school at that time. So basically the beginning of my childhood was a childhood of material deprivations, I would say. Um, and I really saw firsthand and experienced firsthand how vulnerable people are in general and how poverty creates many, many problems and really diminishes life and life potential for everyone. Um, so starting from that, I was um, particularly interested in the lives of poor people. Um, and then I went to law school in Shanghai, um, where I saw a lot of migrant workers. And again, many of my relatives, again, um, were doing, were migrant workers uh, in Shanghai or Beijing, these major cities, but they experienced a lot of social, economic, um, and legal discrimination in Chinese cities. And I, um, and I experienced discrimination as well as someone outside of Shanghai coming from a very, um, I would say materially deprived uh, background. So I think those were sort of the shaping forces that made me interested in social justice and all kinds of oppression, marginalization, deprivation. You're currently working on a chapter called Unfair Housing Law that will be included in an upcoming book on vulnerability theory. Why made you interested in that topic in particular? Because I think housing is essential for everyone. Housing in a safe home, a secure home is the start of a good life. 
it's a start for a, a, of a good life for everyone at all ages, in all stages of life, um, all conditions of life. And I really see, and I do, by the way, I'm a legal anthropologist. I do um, ethnographic work. I read sociological, anthropological accounts of housing injustice in the United States. And that's, again, a core area of my interest, both in a personal way and in a professional way. And I grew increasingly frustrated with how the fair housing law has been weakened uh, since 1968 when it was passed. At the time, people had high hopes that fair housing, the Fair Housing Act would, the Fair Housing Act would uh, drastically improve the racial situation. But over the decades, what I have seen is an effort really to water it down, to um, and narrow its application to a very limited subset of racially or in other ways discriminatory acts. And that's just inadequate. Um, we were just talking about COVID and rising real estate prices in many places. So then housing affordability is a national issue. And I feel that fair housing laws have to do better. You mentioned your background and experience um, with migrant workers and as somebody from, as somebody who was coming in from outside of the city when you started law school in Shanghai, how did that impact your interest in housing law? Did it impact your interest in housing law? And what do you feel that, what do you think that experience brings to your work as a researcher and as a professor? So my interest in housing uh, is a result of my interest in property law. I am, I think, obsessed about property law because I view it. I view everything as property. I think that's <laughs> a drawback of, of, of loving property so much. So I, again, my interest in property has to do with my experience in China as a teenager um, in China. I went to, so in China, law is also an undergraduate program. So that I went to college in, when I was 16, and then I saw a lot of land expropriations. So at that time, remember that Shanghai was, it was, it was a big city, but not as big as today. So what the government and corporations were doing was demolishing a lot of old urban homes and expropriating a lot of farmland and then turning the land into you know, high-rise buildings, office towers, that kind of, uh, of, of action, of urban real estate development and industrialization. So then a, there was a lot of conflict when it came to compensation, when it came to expropriation procedures. And then I felt that property uh, was at the heart of social justice um, and social conflict, um, that property was so essential to the happiness of, of human beings, to our happiness. So that's when I began to take an interest in property law. And then as I was researching and teaching about you know, property issues in the United States, I realized the gravity of the housing issue. So I took a passion in pursuing housing justice, you know, as a scholar from that point on. And also <laughs> I do some local um, NGO advocacy work 
to to foster you know, fair housing. Fair housing, not not in the narrow sense of anti-discrimination, like narrow sense as defined by courts and lawyers, but in a more positive sense of access to housing for everyone. How did you get into vulnerability theory? How did you find out about it first? It's a great question. So that was, I think, sometime in 2017. Um, no, 2016, in fact, I was, um, I, I met a, um, a, a JSD candidate from Emory at a conference, and then she introduced me to the vulnerability theory project. And then I began to read about it. And I was really drawn. So it was the, it was one article that I read by Martha Feynman, the, the article, the vulnerable subject, I believe, published in 2008 in Yale Journal of Law and Feminism, I believe. And it was, it was profound because I was reading. Again, I think this has a lot to do with the property law world. And I have so much to say about that. That, that property law world is, I think, a good example of the liberal paradigm of the independent individual public private distinction of the absolute freedom of the individual, the owner within his, you know, a male <laughs> ideal type, right? Within his sphere. And then any type of interference would be an interference of his autonomy and freedom and would require compelling justification, strong justification. So it was that. And, and reading vulnerability theory made me realize how provincial that classical liberal paradigm is, that it was a new way of conceptualizing, a new way to uh, for example, the paradigm, the, the other alternative paradigm that I was familiar with, which is a communist, a Marxist, not necessarily communist, a Marxist paradigm. And then I guess I began to, to explore vulnerability theory and fall vulnerability project events, uh, and being a participant at more than once. Um, how does vulnerability theory inform your current research into housing laws and unfair housing laws? I feel like I, I don't want to get, get to be like a, a, a writer, like a literary writer explaining how important housing is. I think we all know that, at least the audience interested in this podcast. <laughs> I think it's a, a prime example of how housing builds human resilience, how we become better selves, better human beings, better in the sense of being, of living a more enriching life, a life where we can realize our potential, pursue things that we like, that we are passionate about. And that's why I say that housing is the beginning of everything. And the sociological, anthropological accounts of housing insecurity in the United States are really heartbreaking. And also we, you know, we deserve better human beings, deserve better children, women, everyone deserves better. So that's where I feel that vulnerability theory really faces the question instead of skirting around it, that there are so many pathologies 
if we adopt a classical liberal paradigm. And I think a lot of racism, a lot of classist statements, a lot of sexist statements really <laughs> build their strength on a classical liberal paradigm of human individuals. So then they blame uh, people, you know, insecurely housed people uh, for their own laziness or or lack of motivation or, or cultural pathology or you know drugs or a lack of parental education you know you, you name it the list goes on and on and on so it, it's really dividing while the vulnerability theory as i mentioned earlier is a, as i see it is a unifying theory it really cultivates compassion it transcends this kind of us versus other dichotomy and i think we need solidarity now we need more compassion we need to understand each other better we need to validate each other instead of dividing us putting us on a higher moral ground when you do use vulnerability theory in your research how does using this universal definition this universal vulnerability concept how does that impact the solutions that you're able to find or the recommendations that you come up with and your entire perspective on this research in a way that's different from when you were writing and reading about housing laws and you were functioning in different, uh, using different paradigms. I am still exploring vulnerability and exploring ways to understand it and to apply it in a way that is politically feasible. <laughs> and by that, I, I think I'm, I'm deeply a legal and political realist. Um, and what I, I know that a lot of people, or some people, I would say, some people are drawn to vulnerability theory, but then feel that if they adopt vulnerability theory for one case, they would have to adopt vulnerability theory for all the other cases, which would mean a legal revolution. Um, of the in, of the current legal system, and then they fear that, and then they feel that they don't want to take the first step of accepting vulnerability theory. I'm not saying that everyone is like that, but I know that some people are like that. So they fear the the revolutionary potential of vulnerability theory. I feel that the one way vulnerability theory is interesting to me is that it actually is capable of multiple approaches to applying it, to interpreting it. And my way as a realist, my way is to, to combine vulnerability theories, honest, matter-of-factly, compassion, solidarity, invoking quality with private law, particularly property rights. Basically, my goal not, not necessarily my goal, my strategy. My strategy is to make vulnerability theory less scary, to say it's actually another boring, you know, quote unquote, boring theory that, that a model that we apply to make the law better. And we don't have to have a, a major revolution, say, in property law. In fact, we have these tools in property law. We do, uh, we, we have been doing this way for a long time, but vulnerability theory helps us bring more categories of property issues to the realm of, of, of common property law. And so basically in this way, then 
as my book chapter talks about, that non-discrimination can actually be realized as a feasible property right. And as I, I am actually very conflicted about property right because of the current wealth inequality, because of the ever-expanding uh, scope of owners' you know, rights and powers and um, and privileges. But if I also feel that my deep co- conflict is about wealth inequality, if we could bring we could recognize another kind of entitlement as a property right. And that entitlement is designed to help marginalized people, oppressed people, and then to give them, to give them this weapon, this property right weapon. I think it, as I see it, this is the best strategy I can, that, 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 I mean, that not, not the best strategy in the abstract, but the best strategy for me as a property and social justice scholar. Well, that's such an interesting strategy. So you're essentially creating this other property right that can be used (laughs) by people who are marginalized to then access, like that can be a source of resilience for them so they would also be able to, to access housing and property. That's so interesting. I think in the property law world, I feel that we have to talk to people on the other side. So this is my effort to use the other side's language to, to really engage in their debate and say, if you, if you think this is your good idea, it's a good idea for you to do that. You, you should do this as well. That would be consistent. That would be good for you. So I, I guess I'm, I'm deeply influenced by, um, interest convergence, you know, in critical race theory. And also, I think I was able to do that because I actually had a classical liberal training and law and economics training prior to becoming a legal anthropologist. So I was already familiar with, with the language that the other side uses. One just final question for you, and you can take it wherever you'd like to go. What would you like listeners to remember about our conversation today? Okay, it would be one sentence that not every uh, uh, vulnerability theory scholar and perhaps many vulnerability theory scholars uh, won't agree with, which is, but I think this is, again, one understanding of vulnerability theory. Um, so that is, you don't have to be a revolutionary in order to apply vulnerability theory that there are a lot of low-hanging fruits, I guess. That would be my, my message. Thank you so much for your time today and for your insights. Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me. That's definitely my pleasure. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at BHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability in the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.